What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? What child is this is the question of the song. And what child of the, of the, is this is, in fact, the most definitive question in history. And that's the question that we're going to give ourselves to as a church the month of December. What child is this? Answering that question will be the focus of our Christmas contemplations. You see, what child is this exactly who left the realms of glory to dwell among the sons of men? What child is this born in a, a dumpy village to a carpenter's son and a peasant girl surrounded by scandal? What child is this who stumped theologians as a teenager? Who changed water into wine? Who cleansed a temple? Who healed lepers with a single touch? What child is this exactly who offered salvation to prostitutes? who made demons beg for his mercy, who multiplied enough bread and fish to feed a football stadium, who turned the sea into a sidewalk and walked on water, who healed a man born blind, who healed, who cured diseases from another zip code, who wept at a funeral and then raised the rotting corpse from the tomb. What child is this exactly who was betrayed and arrested and crucified and killed and then seen by his disciples three days later having triumphed over the tomb and then ascended into heaven? What child is this? Is the most important question in the universe. And although I know you already know the answer, we give ourselves to answer that question. Because while there's nothing in the Bible that says that we have to celebrate Christmas, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Let's go all the way and be infatuated, be exhilarated by Jesus Christ as the all-satisfying centerpiece of our lives. Because that's not only the meaning and goal of Christmas, that's the meaning and goal of life itself. And this morning we answer the question, we answer the question, what child is this? Not from the Gospels, and not from the letters of Paul. Not from the prophets, not from the book of Revelation. Rather, we begin our Christmas contemplations by going all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, to the first people created, to the first sin ever committed, and to the very first prophecy ever made in history because there, even at that tragic scene of the fall of the human race, we get our first answer to the question, what child is this? And the answer that Moses gives is that the child is the dragon slayer. He is the serpent crusher who will deal the devil a death blow and bring the prince of darkness to a bloody and violent end. You see, here in the sacred text are the antique roots of your salvation. Here in the sacred text are the, are the, the, the vintage threads of your redemption. This morning, you will see the child, what this child is, proclaimed and prophesied in the sacred text centuries and centuries before he ever even showed up to the planet, before he ever laid and slept on Mary's lap. Which tells us that the Lamb of God being slain for sinners was not an afterthought, was not plan B. 
It wasn't some last-minute roll of the dice in an attempt to save sinners. No, no. What the book of Genesis tells us, what, what the Bible tells us, is that this was the plan before time began and the plot to save the human race, even before there was a human race to save. What that means is that Genesis is not just ancient history, it is salvation history, which means it is your history, and it is absolutely riveting. What you're about to see is not only the painful rebellion of the human race, but the promised redemption of the human race. This morning, you're not only going to see paradise lost, you're going to see paradise promised again in the future. You're not only going to see the emergence of Satan to begin his rebellion, you'll see the promised destruction to end his rebellion. And the reason why is because in the very same chapter in which he appears, even moments after the virus of sin is unleashed into the world, God promises that a savior would come. A deliverer would come and he would slay the dragon. He would get the girl. He will save the kingdom. And from the inside out, he will solve the dilemma of sin and evil in the world. That is who this child is. And I know we love the wise men. We love the manger. We love the swaddling cloths or clothes. I can never remember which one it is. We love choirs of angels. We love shepherds abiding in the field. But you see, what makes all of those things all the more poignant and profound is that the offspring of the virgin's womb was prophesied and predicted centuries before he ever even showed up to the planet. So here we go. Here we go. Hope for your sin. Hope for your struggles, hope for discouragement, hope for despair, hope for marriage and family and sickness and pain and even the most crippling depression that this life could possibly throw at you. And it's all found in the dragon slayer. So let's go to the text. This morning, I want you to see if you've got those half sheets, you can see where we're going. This morning, I want you to see four attributes of the child. Four attributes of the child that secure our hope, strengthens our faith and satisfies our souls. Four attributes of the child that secure our hope, strengthens our faith and satisfies our souls. And the text will unfold in three stages, three stages of sin's progression. The first stage of sin's progression is this. Number one, the deception of the snake. The deception of the snake. Because you know at this point in Genesis, the universe has had a very short but riveting history, hasn't it? Just before chapter 3, Yahweh put his finishing touches on his theater known as the universe. And in that theater, he created a stage upon which the plan of salvation would unfold called Earth. And on that stage, he created a massive, sweeping, exotic, breathtaking garden called Eden. And in that garden, he put the first two people ever created. Their names were Adam and Eve from which the rest of the human race would emerge. And these are, not, these are not mythological or cavemen. These are real people, our first father and mother. And we were like them, except they were without sin, at least for a while, and they lived in paradise. And everything was perfect. Everything was as it should be. 
Everything that they got to experience, everything that we wish we could experience, they got to enjoy and experience at least for a while. And and yet what you have to understand is that what made it paradise, what, what made it better than Hawaii a thousand times over was that they had direct personal access to God himself. Think about that. They saw God's face. They spent time being exhilarated by God. And he himself is what made it paradise. And without question, Adam and Eve had a very bright future plan for themselves, kids and grandkids, building a global kingdom as the king and queen of the human race. And yet before any of those plans could come to fruition, a very unexpected visitor enters onto the stage and we see him in verse one. Look at the text. Now the serpent was more crafty than all of the animals of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? I mean, you feel it, don't you? Whatever, whoever this thing is, his presence makes us feel very uncomfortable, doesn't it? And without warning, without notice, without introduction, he just sneaks up on us in the text. He sneaks up upon Eve. He just appears. He, he catches us off guard. Uh, like an intruder in our home, something's not right. Something's out of place. Something is fishy here, or should I say something is snaky? And Moses tells us very little, very little about who this is, but we know exactly who this is, don't we? This is none other than Satan himself incarnated undercover as a serpent. Revelation 20 verse 2 calls him the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil. And here he's prowling and sneaking and slithering and trespassing in the garden. You notice that there's zero explanation of how he got there, what he's doing, what his agenda is. All we know is that he is cunning and disguised and inconspicuous. And you notice that the devil didn't appear as a dog or as an elephant or as another human being. Why not? Because that's, that's too obvious. That's too conspicuous. That's too noisy. No, instead he showed up as a snake, careful and quiet and camouflaged and covert. And notice how Moses describes him. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals Yahweh God had made. It's very interesting. He's crafty. He's crafty. What that means is we're dealing with a sneak. This is someone with an agenda. This is someone with a trick up his sleeve. This is a, a master manipulator. In other words, there's more here. There's more here than meets the eye. And you notice that his target was a woman. And what's so chilling here is that he sneaks up on her and, and he catches her off guard. Without any notice, without any smooth social pleasantries he sneaks up behind her and asks her a question that reveals just how dangerous and devious he really is notice notice what he asks and he said to the woman did god really say that you can't eat from any tree of the garden i mean do you see what he does here how he carefully rewords god's original command and then let me get this straight did god really say that you can't eat from any tree of the garden? And you're okay with that. Hmm. Hey, I'm just asking here. If I don't ask you, who's gonna? Do you see? This is poisonous manipulation at its finest. And yet, and yet, and, and, and you see here that, that, that 
he tweaks the wording just enough so as to contaminate her view of God. But by questioning his word and casting a shadow of doubt on his motives and generosity. Wait, what? No, he didn't say that. He said you can't eat from one tree. One tree out of, out of thousands of trees, orchards of trees surrounding their house with only one of them being forbidden. And yet, and yet, he changes the wording to contaminate their view of God. I mean, we are not prepared for this. She is not prepared for this. And somehow, even though the exchange has been seconds, the poison immediately begins to take effect. Look at a response of verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, and you shall not touch it, otherwise you shall die. And what is so astonishing here is that the woman does not seem surprised at all that this reptile can talk. And so people take this as some evidence that maybe before the fall in sort of some sort of like, you know, Narnia-like fashion that animals could talk before sin entered the world. And, and most people just mock this as a pre-scientific fairy tale. But I argue that Adam and his wife should have been incredibly suspicious the thing the second this thing opened its mouth because a talking animal would have been just as creepy and out of place then as it would be today. And we'll see in just a few minutes, Adam was standing right there the whole time, wasn't he? Watching this horrifying transaction unfold between the serpent and his wife, and yet he stood nothing. He, 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 he said nothing. He, he did nothing. He, he stood passively by watching this monster seduce his wife when he was the one most qualified to recognize that what they were dealing with us in this moment was absolutely evil and diabolical. I mean, did Adam not himself name the animals? Was he not acquainted with every one of them? And he would have known animals can't talk. That's weird. Something's not right here. Something is strange. And you notice her response to the snake. She, she both minimizes God's generosity and she softens the severity of the consequences for sin. In other words, we can tell by her words that something is beginning to happen. She, she's beginning to see things from the serpent's perspective. And up till now, Satan has been a very good predator. Because you know how predators operate, don't you? They don't, they don't move in for the kill right away. They're careful. They're calculated. They're smooth, they bide their time, they keep their distance at first, they maintain a certain level of deniability, they wait and bide their time, they slowly groom and condition their victims to willingly place themselves into their clutches, and then when they are most vulnerable, then they go for the throat, which is exactly what he does in verse 4. Look at the text. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. And there it is, the first contradiction. This is the first lie. And yet, and yet, what's funny about it is that it is true. It was true, half true, half true. This will be good. This will feel good. This will, this will open your eyes. It looks good to the eyes. It will make you wise and it will destroy you. But he didn't say that. No, he, he wouldn't dare say that because Satan doesn't come selling lies. He comes selling lies mixed with truth, which makes them all the harder to spot. Not to mention all the more believable. And, and it's true. They wouldn't die. Immediately. 
at first. In fact, Adam wouldn't die for another 930 years. But you see, what the serpent didn't tell them is, is that although their physical death was not immediate, it was inevitable. Their funeral would come. He also, he also conveniently forgot to tell them that the kind of death they would die would be spiritual death, spiritual death and slavery to sin. Their all-satisfying connection with God would be severed and every single human being after them would be born spiritually dead, exactly like them, subjecting the entire human race to ruin and destruction. But he forgot to mention that. Left that in the fine print details because he's a murderer. As Christ said in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the very beginning. And he continues his little charade in verse 5, plunging the knife of deception deeper into her brain. Look at the text. You won't die for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what he does there? When he says for or because, he's explaining why it is they will not die. And his argument is, God has lied to you. He lied to you. He, you believe that? You think you're going to die? No, no. No, no. God only said that to scare you away. You won't die because God's got a secret that he doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want you to eat the fruit because if you do, your eyes will be opened. If you do, you will be like him and you will have the secret knowledge that he wants to keep for himself. No, clearly you will not die. And I think his point is God is holding out on you. God doesn't want the competition. He's afraid of you. He's threatened by you. Don't you see, he's withholding from you what you deserve, from what's best for you. And what's best for you is hanging right over there on that tree, that magical fruit over there, which means your joy is just one bite away. And so you see his strategy, don't you? He just just stuck his sinister claws into reality and he turned it inside out. He made God sound stingy and petty and jealous and tight-fisted. He just made the consequences for sin look thrilling and irresistible, didn't he? In other words, Satan just told them the ultimate lie that our sin tells us every single day, which is God is not the object of your joy. He is the obstacle to your joy. That's the lie. And at the end of the day, was he not offering them the opportunity to be gods themselves? You will be like God. You will be God. Ruling yourself. Governing yourself. Bringing glory to yourself. At the end of the day, that's the issue. It is a glory of God issue. It's a supremacy of God issue. The tragedy was that God was being replaced. So the question is, church, do you see the the haunting implications of this first exchange between the prince of darkness and our first mother? Many, many implications. Let me give you one. You see, the strategies of the evil one to bring ruin to our lives are way, way more subtle than you would actually think. A lot of people have these sort of mystical, strange, odd Hollywood ideas of what Satan does to bring ruin to people's lives. But I'll tell you what is satanic. 
anything that deviates from the word of God, that is satanic. Do you see that? That is the essence of evil and diabolical. Anything that remotely suggests the possibility that God's word is insufficient or inadequate or imperfect or irrelevant is no different than the devil himself asking, did God really say that? Are you sure? Oh, how we need to guard ourselves from being duped by the evil one, by being gluttons for the word of God, meditating on his word day and night. Brings us to the second stage of sin's progression, number two, the depravity of the couple. The depravity of the couple. Like a virus in a computer, the words of the serpent are already in her mind, infecting everything, infecting the hard drive of her soul. I mean, her brain is twisted and scrambled. It, it, it has jumbled this mess of manipulation. And with total annihilation of the human race, hanging in the balance, we read this in verse 6. Look at the text. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was beautiful to the eyes and that it was desirable to make one wise. I mean, at this point, it's not even a debate in her mind. Is it? She's been converted. She's been convinced to think that, that God only got in the way of what she thought would make her happy. I mean, what this tree had to offer was the, the, was the, the, the thrill of the forbidden was just, was just too irresistible for her. It was just too enticing and alluring and seductive and, and tantalizing. And so watch, beloved, watch in real time with terror, the unraveling of the human race. Notice that it says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And you must understand that doesn't mean merely that she was hungry. It meant that she was hungry for something other than God. Her appetites and, and cravings for a false satisfaction and a forbidden pleasure had consumed her. And next it says the woman saw that the tree was beautiful to the eyes. Its, it's endless possibilities charmed her and enchanted her soul. The, the tree had an aesthetic property to it. It was pleasing and attractive and apparently so seemingly irresistible that God and his worth and his beauty and his promises and his generosity, not to mention his warnings for sin, meant nothing in the moment. You understand, this was the only thing that really mattered in the moment. God was old news. God in the way of what she thought would make her happy. And that's, that's exactly how it feels to be tempted, doesn't it? This, this temporary amnesia and, and, and insanity that willingly forgets that God even exists. It's exactly what it feels like. You see, what makes sin so dangerous, beloved, is that it persuades you that the pleasure it offers is so good that the consequences you suffer for it will be worth it in the end. Sin doesn't deny that there's consequences. Sin is, I think, honest about that. No, no, there will be consequences, and it will hurt. I'm just saying, that the pleasure that I offer will make those consequences worth it in the end. So what? So what if you ruin your marriage? So what if you blow up your family? 
so what if you go to hell? So what if you destroy the world? So what? It will be worth it in the end. Or at least that's what sin wants you to think. But you see, the solution for that, let's call it the holy countermeasure to our sin, is to, as they say, counter blessings. And by that I mean counter blood-bought blessings in Christ. In other words, the secret, I'm not even kidding, the secret to overcoming sin and temptation in real time is to rehearse to your own soul all the blessings, the blood-bought blessings that Christ purchased with his death. In Christ, I am born again. In Christ, I am forgiven In Christ, I am justified. In Christ, I am reconciled. In Christ, I am adopted as a son of the Father. I have eternal life. If you pause on those and think on those and contemplate those and be exhilarated by those, all of a sudden the pleasures of sin lose their deceptive appeal. Do you see? But finally we see that the woman saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Ah, wisdom, secrets, knowledge, liberation, and power. This, this was the wisdom and freedom that she was looking for. She didn't know she needed, but now she knows, and, and she was willing to gamble her kids and her grandkids and her great-grandkids and us to get it. And being fully convinced that this was the right thing to do, despite God's warnings to the contrary, she reaches up, pulls the pin, and detonates the world. Look at verse 6. And she took from its fruit, and she ate, and she gave even to her husband with her, and he ate. You, you read this and you kind of feel like when you watch a scary movie and you see these stupid characters walking into some scene, walking into certain death and you yell at the screen, no, 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 don't go there. Don't go in. And we want to say it in the text. No, Eve, don't do it. Adam, don't eat that. And it was too late. It was too late. She ate and in that moment, you understand, paradise was over. All of the tragedy and train wreck and, 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 and horrifying things that you see in history and the things that you have seen in your life, the things you have seen in your life this week are the ripple effects, the blast radius of the fall. It took less than three hours for the Titanic to sink into the bottom of the ocean. And in less than three minutes, it took the human race to sink to the bottom of the ocean of sin and destruction. I want you to notice something very troubling about the text. Look very closely. Eve took from the fruit and she gave it to her husband with her and he ate. That's very interesting, right? We have not seen Adam. This is the first time he's mentioned in the text, which kind of makes us, leaves us wondering, well, where the heck was he this whole time? And you see, the text makes it clear that he was 
with her. He was with her. He was complicit. In fact, he was even more complicit because although his wife was deceived, his sin was pure, willful, stupidity, or or disobedience, or all of the above. He stood right there the whole time watching this predator corner his wife, and yet he said nothing, and he did nothing. His role in marriage was to be the leader, which include being a protector, and his passivity from the very beginning is absolutely tragic. He heard the entire conversation. He had the chance to get between his wife and this thing, and yet he did nothing. He was silent, passive, and spineless, like many men today. And then we see the immediate aftermath of their fatal decision, verse 7. So strange. You expect something more dramatic? Dun, dun, dun. You expect something, explosions, volcanoes. Instead, this is what we see. And the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed for themselves the leaves of a fig tree. And they made loincloths for themselves. That's so interesting. Satan was exactly right, wasn't he? Their eyes were opened. Exactly like he promised. Just not in the way he made it sound. They did become like God in some way. Just not in the way he made it sound. See, the oceanic depths of pleasure and and insight and, and the thrill that they were expecting for which they longed turned out only to be profoundly anticlimactic. A soul-crushing disappointment, which is exactly what sin does to us today. And the text says that they, they knew that they were naked. And the point is, before this, they didn't have anything to be ashamed of. There were no scandals, no secrets, no corruption, no, nothing to hide, nothing, nothing hidden. They could stand before God and one another naked with a clean conscience. And it wasn't weird or inappropriate to do so. And how they were guilty. Their innocence was lost. They were defiled. They were damaged goods. They were polluted and violated by sin. The the image of God in which they were created had become shattered and and mutilated and disfigured. And now everything had changed. Their their new knowledge and liberation and self-consciousness was not the paradise for their hope. It was the end of paradise. They were not who they used to be, and now everything had changed. And so what did they do? They needed to compensate. They needed to compensate. They could not undo what had been done. The vase was already broken, and they could not make it unbroken. But maybe they could glue it back together. Maybe perhaps they could superficially fix what had been done. So look what they do at the end of verses 7. And they sowed for themselves the leaves of a fig tree, and they made loincloths for themselves. I mean, this is just embarrassing. This is really sad, ridiculous, pitiful, and yet we know exactly how they felt. We do not judge them too harshly, do we? As a hasty an impulsive coping mechanism. They reach for some leaves of a tree and they throw together some sort of garment to put over those parts of the body which were now shameful to expose. 
And I think the reason why they covered those parts in particular is because their shame and depravity would be most clearly seen in what those parts would reproduce, namely a family and a society and a world and a population filled with totally depraved sinners under the wrath and judgment of God. Those parts became instruments of corruption and they could not bear to look at them any longer. So their self-made efforts to hide their shame while completely understandable were pathetic and even evil, weren't they? I mean, what this, were, what this was, you understand, was the birth of humanism. What this was was self-atonement. What this was was man's first attempt to form his own religion by works without repentance and without faith. What this was was a self-healing remedy of the soul to superficially cope with the gaping wound in their soul. And we know exactly how they felt, don't we? And yet our first parents, instead of confessing their sin, do something that will feel very familiar to you. Look at verse 8. With paradise lost and the bitter taste of sin still between their teeth, look at what we see. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, in the wind of the day. Some scholars might even think that that refers to a storm, a picture of judgment. Regardless, the man and his wife hid themselves from before the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Tradition, God shows up to the crime scene, and they do the only thing they could think of in that moment. They ran away and hid. That was not their only option, but that's the choice they made. And it made zero sense, zero sense to hide from the God who knows the secrets of the heart, but that's what sin does, doesn't it? It is irrational, it is illogical, it is insane. In our narcissistic fear, we try to hide from the one who loves to save sinners, who loves to give grace to sinners, who loves to give what is best for them, and what is best for them is his son who died in the place of hell, deserving sinners like you and me. It makes zero sense to run from God, and yet, beloved, if you are here and you are running from God this morning. God is using this text to meet you in the eye and to look you in the eye and to let you know that there is grace available. Renovating, reconstructive, reconciling grace for you in his son and speaking of his son brings us to the third stage. The third stage of sin's progression, number three, the devastation of sin. The devastation of sin with paradise lost and a half-naked couple trembling in the forest, just hoping God is going to go away and leave them alone. He shows up to deal with the serpent and our fallen parents who took the bait. And here's where the real intrigue begins. Look at verse 9. And Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Ayeka, where are you? Where are you, son? It's interesting when he shows up, he doesn't come looking for Satan. He doesn't ask the whereabouts of the woman. He comes looking for the man, which is a 
perhaps subtle reminder that men are responsible for the leadership of their families. When God comes knocking on the door of your house, men, he arrives, as it were, looking for you. And Yahweh asks where Adam is, not because he doesn't already know, but because it's time to come forward and confess, confess what he had done, of which his crimes were many. And, and Adam, hidden and trembling deep into the forest, calls out like a guilty child in verse 10. I heard the, your sound in the garden, and I was afraid because I am naked, and I hid myself. Notice he doesn't say where he is. He's not going to yield that information, but he does confess that he is afraid. And why is he afraid? He's afraid because he's naked. He's naked before God. It wasn't a problem before, but now all of a sudden it is because he's, he's, he's damaged goods. He's defiled before the God of the universe, which prompts the follow-up question in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that? Wait a second. Did you, did you eat from the tree which I commanded you to not eat? He lovingly corners his son to elicit a confession. What this was, you understand, was the opportunity to repent and come clean, to face the music, to take it like a man, to, to trust his father to do what was best. And in answer to the question, there were a number of really good responses at the top of the list were, I have sinned, I am guilty, I need mercy, I am sorry, please forgive me. Any one of those would do. But Adam, the cowardly king, chose none of the above. Verse 12, and the man said, the woman, <laughs> the woman who you gave to me, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. I mean, the number of sins here piling up exponentially. Instead of brokenhearted confession and repentance, instead of what we get is blame shifting, excuses. And notice, this is very cleverly done. Notice how two-edged sword, Adam simultaneously blames God and his wife for detonating the human race. God, I don't know why you're looking at me. I don't know why you're looking at me. The woman that you gave to me, she gave to me from the tree. I only ate what she gave me. Hey, she makes me food. I eat it. What am I supposed to do? What are you looking at me for? Which means, which means, in all seriousness, he made the first mistake that you and I make every single day of our lives. Namely, that we forget that the greatest evil is not outside of us somewhere, but it is precisely inside of us. And without even responding to Adam's foolish, guilty response, he moves in to the woman to expose her guilt. Verse 13, and Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, to her credit, she's slightly more honest than her husband. But the, question, but the answer is still one of evasion and blame shifting. Instead of owning up to the full weight of her crime, she blames Satan as if he were the sole culprit that made giving in her only option. The devil made me do it. Here it is. And she was deceived. That's true. That's true. She was deceived. But not in any way that minimized her guilt. And you understand, there's no way they could have possibly known this, but our first father and mother, they did not comprehend the devastating consequences of what they had done. But they were soon about to. And yet all of a sudden, Yahweh turns and 
looks at the serpent right in the eyes. And you notice, you notice, what's the difference between his conversation with Adam and Eve and his conversation with the serpent? You notice he is done asking questions. The interrogation is over. Verses 14 through 19, God announces one by one to each of the guilty offenders the devastating consequences for their crimes. And, and Moses doesn't tell us if this happened through the trees at a distance or if this happened face to face. But all we know is, is that we, everything that he is about to say, we still feel the effects of even at this very moment. And he begins with the dragon himself. Look at verse 14. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you did this... You are more cursed than all of the cattle and the animals of the field which Yahweh God made. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Notice that God gives Satan no opportunity to defend himself. It's over for him. I mean, he, he just pronounces the catastrophic judgments against him. And notice he begins some, with some t terrifying words for him. He says, you are cursed, more cursed than all of the animals of the field. What does it mean to be cursed? You know what it means? It means that there is no opportunity for repentance. It is over for him. It's over. The very chapter in which he first appeared, it's over. And now he is on borrowed time awaiting his final destruction in the lake of fire forever and ever and yet. And yet, I want you to notice in verses 14 through 15 where we see this curse, this curse unfold in three dreadful stages. First, verse 14. Yahweh says, on your belly you shall go. That does not mean that snakes used to have legs. And this is the point entirely. Rather, to force someone to crawl in the dirt is the deepest form of degradation and humiliation. Number two, Yahweh tells the serpent, dust you will eat all the days of your life. You understand to kick dirt in someone's face and make them eat it is so degrading that even the worst of criminals are treated with more dignity. And yet Satan will receive no such special treatment. He will eat dust all the days of his life, which means he will be miserable, yes, but it means that this is a way to say that he will experience utter and total humiliation, which one day will culminate in the lake of fire forever. But you see, the final, it's the final manifestation of the curse that's by far the most profound. And if you haven't read verse 15 before, if you have forgotten what this says, you are not going to believe what you're about to see. This could be and is one of the most important verses in the entirety of the Old Testament because you understand what this is, is the first prophecy. It is the first prophecy, the first prediction made. And it is a prophecy no less about a savior and a conqueror and a warrior and a deliverer to come to make things right in the world. And so behold, verse 15, it's a blessing wrapped inside of a curse. What's a curse for the evil one is a blessing for us. The same bite that is poison for him, it is healing for us. Verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and between the woman. Between your offspring 
and between her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush you on your head and you will strike him, bruise him on the heel. And there it is. First prophecy. First prophecy ever made. Someone is going to come. Someone is going to arrive on the scene of history and they're going to undo what Adam has done. Where the first man failed, the son of man would come and make things right. Where the first king dropped the ball and shattered everything, the second king will come and make things right. What I'm saying is the child laid to rest and sleeping on Mary's lap is here. Jesus Christ is in the text. He is here. This is the child. This is the son. And he's here in the text centuries before he, before he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And notice very carefully what God says. I will put enmity, enmity between you and between the woman. Between your offspring and between her offspring. What is enmity? What does this mean? It means hostility. It means violence. It means a conflict is coming in the future. And, and, and notice that God is the one who put it there because God is the one who is sovereign, not Satan. But the question is, what does it mean that enmity will exist between Satan and the woman? And God specifies exactly what he means by the next phrase. Look at the text. I will put enmity between your offspring, Satan, and between her offspring. And that word seed or offspring, that is so massive, so important. If you wanted a thrilling, thrilling study of the Bible, you would take that Hebrew word and you would trace it through the Old Testament. And it would culminate into Galatians 3 about Jesus Christ, the offspring is the hero. He is the warrior. He is the conqueror. Here he is. And it, the word means an off, it means a descendant. He's talking about a person. This is a child. This is a son would arrive and enter the scene of history. Someone is going to come from the family line of the woman and he is going to pick a fight with the serpent and he is going to win. Because look what the text says. He will crush you on your head. And he will strike him, bruise him on the heel. The damage done by the serpent will be minimal, but the damage done to him will be fatal. Satan will strike him on the heel, crucifixion. But he himself will endure a crippling, blunt force trauma to the skull that will put an end to him once for all. Also the crucifixion. The serpent has been put on notice. His life has an expiration date. You know that, don't you? It will not always be the way it is now. Because the great son, the great offspring will arrive on human history again. And he will deal the devil a death blow and bring him to a bloody and violent end. And he will and has done that in two ways. Number one, he would and has crushed him through his sin-bearing sacrificial substitutionary death. Hasn't he? You see, it was at Golgotha. It was at the cross that the evil one was publicly neutered and defanged. You know why? Because souls were purchased there. Sins were paid for there. 
Captives were freed there from the chains of the evil one, the slave trade, freed from the slave trade of the evil one. But number two, the offspring, Jesus Christ, will crush the serpent when he triumphantly returns to claim his throne at the second coming. Because he will return, mark my words, and with invincible, sovereign power, he will crush the skull of the serpent, deal him a final blow, and establish his kingdom and rule the universe from a throne in Jerusalem. And when he returns, Revelation 20, verse 10 says that he will cast him into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever, and no one will weep for him. And so in answer to the question, what child is this? Multiple answers rise to the surface, don't they? Four answers to the question, what child is this? Number one, number one, the child is the great dragon slayer. The great dragon slayer who will devastate Satan's reign and bring an end to his tyranny of evil. Number two. The child is the great serpent crusher. The one who, when he comes, will land the final punch and undo everything the devil has done for centuries. Number three, the child is the great death eater. The one who tasted death for us. That we might forever savor the riches of eternal life. And number four, the child is the grave robber and the great tomb raider who when he arrives, he will speak and he will supernaturally reassemble all the decomposed worm eaten bits and crumbs that used to be us and supernaturally reassemble us into glorified sinless human beings never to sin or die again and then we will inherit a kingdom forever you understand that's who this child is and that not only revolutionizes christmas you understand revolutionizes our entire lives because who this child is secures our hope and strengthens our faith and satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it is painful to see that in the text and yet what hope? what hope there is, the ripple effects of the promise of the offspring fill us with joy. Oh, Father, help us to cling to him. Help us to hope in him. Oh, Lord, he did not merely cancel forgiveness, cancel sins of the past, but he supplies everything we need to live lives that, that put him on display. Help us, oh, Lord. Help us to love him. Help us to trust him. Help us to cling to him and to live lives that put his fame and glory on exhibit to the world. We need your help, Lord. Help us to maximize not only Christmas, but our entire lives as we savor the answer to the question, what child is this? In the matchless and mighty name of Christ, we pray, amen.